This is John Haltzman, and it's good to be back with you. I've been on the road a lot, traveling to get to do one of our flagship Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new world we find ourselves in. Uh, while I've been gone, though, we've been ably supported by my supporting cast. J.L. Ryder's been writing fantastic stuff on the society. Publius' his usual edgy stuff and creatively provocative about policy on the economy. And lately, my great friend Garrett Murch has started to serialize his new novel, As He's Education, which is a fantastic satire explaining why American politics has become so polarized, uh, looking at things from the point of view of both what's gone wrong with the Republicans and a man named Trunk and Lucinda, who is a mirror image of Hillary Clinton, uh, but done at the high school level. It is hilarious and like all good satires, also wise. And I'm really honored that Garrett's letting us um, serialize Ezzy's education, which we will be doing for the next number of months. And it's exciting that the newsletter is now doing what Victorian newsletters used to do, like The Strand with Sherlock Holmes. We have Garrett doing Ezzy's education, and we will continue along the lines here. So exciting times, and everybody but me is pulling their weight. So I thought it was time that I do and around the world in 20 minutes. Uh, I'm just back from Portugal, where I gave a great keynote. It was real fun. It was great to see you all there to about four or 500 people about the state of the world as we passed from the age of globalization into our new age of uncertainty. And it was a really good group, and I enjoyed my time there with you all immensely. Uh, I survived a French strike. Uh, of course, the French are on strike. It's what they do. Um, for, I guess, retiring earlier than 14. Um, as a result, there were no air traffic controllers. So from Portugal, we had to fly around France, which is difficult. I missed my connection and finally got home after we were being rerouted through Frankfurt, got back home to Milan later than 2 a.m., which is why Europe doesn't work in a nutshell. But today, it's, we're not talking about Europe. We're going to talk about the United States. And it's a big one for us. Here at the firm, it's when we make our midterm call ahead of time. And our call, boldly and clearly, is the GOP are going to pick up 20 to 30 seats in the House, do well. But the Senate is going to remain a 50-50 tie for the first time in memory. We're going to have the Senate be 50-50. And I want to talk you through both ends of this pick right now. And it's been a very, very tough one to do, mainly because with the Senate already divided 50-50, it's hard to get off that number, and getting it wrong by even one changes the political risk balance of power a great deal. So we need to go through this. Um, let's start with the GOP picking up 20 to 30 seats in the House, and, and this is fairly straightforward. Uh, Tip O'Neill, although right for the time, has been wrong for the two generations after him. The famed Democratic leader of the House, Speaker of the House at the time of Ronald Reagan, and an old-fashioned Boston Paul to the tips of his fingers, said famously, all politics is local. And O'Neill couldn't be more wrong, because in the two generations since his day, uh, politics, particularly in the House, has become national. The number one guide historically that's accurate almost infallibly is the president's approval rating. After a president comes to power in their first midterm, as we've talked about many times, the president tends to lose seats almost overwhelmingly. There are some exceptions to the rule. George W. Bush in 2002 after 9-11, Bill Clinton um, coming in 1998 after the Lewinsky fiasco 
gaining seats, but generally presidents lose seats in the midterm as people have buyer's remorse after seeing that they've done either too much or too little and want checks upon the president. And boy, the American system is replete with checks. Uh, so this tends to be what happens. There are, again, these few exceptions. FDR in 1934, after he began to turn the economy around with the New Deal. But the, these three are, are exceptions to the overwhelming rule since the Civil War. This is particularly true in terms of seat losses after a president just comes in in their first midterm, two years after their victory. You tend to see a big swing. And so historically, Biden was already going to have to swim against the tide. And then when you add in that politics is now nationalized and the fact that the president's approval rating is the best guide to how bad it's going to be, uh, you see a real problem. Biden is in real clear politics poll of polls this morning at about 42 percent. As we've said, every Washington, Washingtonian real swamp dweller follows assiduously, as do I, president's polling numbers because it is the thermometer guide day to day for the presidency. And the rule of thumb is that if the president's rating is above 60 percent, he can tell Congress what to do because he's so overwhelmingly popular. Think Ronald Reagan after 1984. Think Bill Clinton early on in his term. Think Franklin Roosevelt most of the time. Uh, but this tends to be the way that it works. Um, the reality of the moment is that Joe Biden at 42 percent. At 40, the president is trying to squelch rumors that he's dead, that he's relevant at all. And this is the bottom line, the baseline number. And Biden has been flirting with that baseline number for a long time. Most Americans, particularly independents, have made up their mind that the Biden presidency is a failure, that he hasn't managed to unify the country as he set out to do in his inauguration at a minimum, and that he's run the economy into the ground with the inflation crisis, the energy crisis, and spending money like a drunken sailor on top of this with bill after bill after bill after he's been kidnapped by the progressive wing of his party. And the reality is that that explains why Biden is at 42. He is still relevant, barely, but he's unpopular and is seen generally as a failure, particularly by the critical independent voters that determine elections in the United States. And so this is a relatively easy call based on the nationalization of the House voting, based upon the historical precedent, and based upon Biden's specific very low approval rating of 42% on average of today, it's quite easy to call that the GOP are going to pick up 20 to 30 seats and retake control of the House. Now, in political risk terms, this means, and this is quite normal, that the domestic agenda of the president after two years is over. Almost always, presidents hit the ground running and accomplish most of domestically what they set out to do right away. Think Obama and his health care plan being a good example, where after that he did almost nothing domestically for the next seven years. But this is an extreme version of what's normal. Reagan and his tax cuts early on in 1980-82, that's when he moved the needle domestically. Even FDR, the first hundred days, were the beginning of his presidency, even of his 12 years in office. Um, this, this was really the flurry of activity was that first two years even in an activist presidency like Roosevelt's, where he accomplished a good deal more as time went on. The key period of the flurry of activity is at the beginning. And for Biden, this is going to prove to be the case. With the House now Republican, two things are going to happen. It will block his domestic agenda, and they will investigate every facet of Democratic malfeasance for the, next, for the last few years, from Hunter Biden 
and Biden's shameful influence peddling through the years. Whether it's illegal or immoral to me almost doesn't matter. They've used the Biden name to make a fortune, both Biden's brother and his son, who have no demonstrable skills of any kind, except an addiction to crack cocaine and a predilection for prostitution. And yet he's been made the head of boards of things simply because of his last name. This is shameful and will begin to be called out. The obsession of the Democrats to get Trump at any cost, the weaponization of the FBI, uh, the knowledge of the fact that they were using Hillary Clinton's op research, her involvement, Fauci, all of this gobbledygook will come out and the Republicans will keep the Democrats tied up in knots with their lawyers being investigated for the next two years. So that that's a for sure if, if I'm right about my call. And the second thing I'm sure about is that the domestic agenda is at an end. And this is how Washington works. Washington, like water, moves to the area of least resistance in terms of power. And so the president will pivot to foreign affairs, which is what presidents do after the midterm. So this is all historically very much normal and in the realm, and that's where we're going. I'm very confident about our 20 to 30 seat majority and shameful plug for the firm. Remember that we called the last election entirely perfectly, a close but clean win for Biden and the presidency, the House remaining Democratic, and the Senate being 50-50. We called it to the senator. And this leads me to my Senate call, which is much harder. We are calling it to remain 50-50, exactly where it is now. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. This would seem to be a Republican year for all the points that I've raised up to now. But Senate races, unlike House races, tend to be far more individualistic. They're dependent on the tenor of the Senate seat up. They're dependent on the quality of the candidate. And so this bucks the national trend, whereas the House tends to be strongly nationalistic in terms of voting following national trends particularly the president's approval rating, the Senate seats are far more idiosyncratic, making them an awful lot harder to call. One of the reasons the Democrats are going to do better than expected and end up with a 50-50 Senate is because just of the nature of the seats that happen to be up this time. On the next cycle, a whole, a whole bunch of Democratic seats are up for them to have to defend that were won by Donald Trump. This time, almost none of those seats are up. And so the Democrats just have a very good luck of the draw, the seats that happen to be up. And remember, every election cycle, one third of the senators are called upon to run for re-election. And so it's luck of the draw. And this time around, it just happens to be that most of the seats up are, are in states where Joe Biden did very well. Next time, they're going to be in states where Donald Trump did very well. And so next time, this force will be against the Democrats. But this time, this factor is strongly with the Democrats. So there's that. And second, let's look at the top eight seats briefly and the character of those seats. So I was talking about the idiosyncratic qualities. Arizona is a seat that Senator Kelly is likely to retake. He's run a stronger than expected campaign. And although Arizona is now a purple state, is in real play and contention with the power of the incumbency and a better than expected showing by Kelly, Arizona will remain close but cleanly in the pocket of the Democrats. Um, likewise, Ohio, almost mirror image opposite, J.D. Vance, the writer of Hillbilly Elegy and a strong Trump supporter, is going to take Ohio. Ohio just about, this is my home state, Ohio, so I know it well, Ohio just about remains a purple state, but it's heading red. 
that had voted for Trump last time, that it's increasingly voting for Republicans, that disenfranchised blue-collar workers have moved from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party after the Trump revolution. And so Republicans start out with it with an advantage. And in fact, in Tim Ryan, the Democratic nominee in Ohio, they've picked pretty much the ideal candidate. He's an old FDR-style blue-collar Democrat. They couldn't have picked better the Democrats. And Vance is young and untested, very up and down on the campaign trail. He has some great moments. And I think down the road, he's a guy I would certainly like to work with on, on the Republican foreign policy, where he's got some interesting things to say and some very creative ideas. But in general, Vance is going to win because the state is slightly skewed, 55-45, for the Republicans. So that will go Republicans. So Arizona to the Dems, Ohio to the Republicans. Georgia is an example where the quality of the candidate matters, that Herschel Walker, the former sports star, Dallas Cowboy running back, University of Georgia running back, um, but he's in a car crash of a human being, and he's a car crash of a candidate, and Raphael Warnock, despite his many flaws, is going to eke out a victory in what is a truly 50-50 toss-up state. So Warnock will hold the seat for the Democrats. In Wisconsin, on the other hand, the Republicans will hold on. Ron Johnson has been given a run for his money. Wisconsin is probably 51-49 Democrat, but a good Republican candidate can win. Johnson is always behind when he runs for re-election and always comes down, comes up through the stretch. And it looks like that's happening now in real clear politics. Johnson's up by about three points just inside the margin of error. But I think Johnson will hold on and win. Uh, New Hampshire will go to Maggie Hassan again. Uh, the main reason, and this is a state the Republicans ought to have won, but, but the governor, Sununu, chose not to run for the Senate seat, but to retain his governorship. And this costed him the seat, that, that he would be the candidate, Sununu, who could have beaten Hassan, and I think he would have. But without him, none of the other candidates are of the stature of Sununu. And so Hassan will win. She's up by eight, I mean, quite cleanly in New Hampshire. In Nevada, on the other hand, I think you're going to see a seat actually turn, that, that Laxalt is going to take the seat. Uh, New Hampshire is an, Nevada is an interesting state because it has a huge Hispanic population. Increasingly, Hispanics are voting for Trump and the Republican Party, which is a logical fit. Hispanics tend to be very pro-family, very pro-business, uh, very libertarian. They just want to get on with it um, and are socially conservative Catholics, uh, this is a group that really ought to be a key Republican constituency if Republicans can stop calling them names, uh, which they have just enough that a number of Hispanics have fled an increasingly leftist Democratic Party and found their natural home amongst Republicans, which is a huge factor we're going to talk about in the years ahead. If Hispanics become a logical member of the Republican coalition as the largest growing minority group in the country, this is great news indeed for the GOP. And you're going to see the beginnings of this, that Laxalt has run quite a competent campaign. Nevada's a toss-up, and Hispanics will put Laxalt over the line, and this will be a swing to the Republicans. But then there'll be a swing back to the Democrats in Pennsylvania. Um, the problem is that Mehmet Oz, the TV kind of Oprah star, uh, lives in New Jersey, um, as has been pointed out, is a multimillionaire who lives in New Jersey, so he's an out-of-touch multimillionaire carpetbagger. That's not a good way to start out a run for the Senate anywhere. Fetterman, despite living with his parents, he lives with his mom in the basement, who seemed to take care of him, which is a very odd set of calling cards and, and credentials to be a senator. But then again, historically, we've probably had stranger. 
Uh, Fetterman is going to take the seat. He's up clearly by four or so points. It'll be close. But Pennsylvania, which swings slightly to the Democrats, another 51-49 kind of state, is going to bring Fetterman home, not because he's such a great candidate. He's not. He's been lying about his heart condition. He lives with his mom in the basement. But on the other hand, he's not a multimillionaire carpetbagger from outside the state. And so this will propel Fetterman to victory, which will swing a state back in the Democratic column. And then Bud in North Carolina, this is a 51-49 Republican state. It always threatens to go Democratic and never quite does. And you see that happening again, that you have Bud up by a point or two in North Carolina, and he's going to bring it home by a point or two, breaking the heart of the Democrats. So Arizona for the Democrats, Ohio for the Republicans, uh, Wisconsin for the Republicans, Georgia for the Democrats, New Hampshire for the Democrats, Nevada for the Republicans, Pennsylvania for the Democrats and North Carolina for the Republicans. Um, even if we get a couple of these wrong, which I'm sure we will, when you add it all up, I don't see a way out of 50-50. And that leaves Senator Manchin, again, the casting vote as the most conservative Democratic senator in the Senate. But with the House gone, the Biden agenda will be gone. But look for the Democrats to have a surprisingly, on the face of it, good night in the Senate as the midterms come along. But the president will undoubtedly pivot to foreign policy, where constitutionally he is by far first among equals, is the dominant decision maker. In foreign policy, in a way, he's not. In domestic policy, in domestic policy, you have the Treasury, you have the Fed, you have the House, you have the Senate, you have the relevant finance and banking committees, you have the Appropriations Committee at all. He is just one of a number of players, and that ship is going to leave port. Um, when you have the Democrats lose the House regardless. But an advantage with a 50-50 Senate for Biden is he can confirm judges at 50-50 and, and get his people in. And so this will matter a lot in that way. But the domestic agenda will be over. The president will pivot to foreign affairs as is his want, as is normal. And Manchin will be the slowest ship and the pivot vote in the Senate. But with the House gone, the domestic agenda is over. They'll manage to confirm district and, and, and local judges, another Supreme Court pick if such a pick comes up. Uh, but that's where we're going to be heading in to 2024. And we'll save our major talk about 2024 for later. But the interesting thing for Biden, deeply unpopular, is the only man that the Biden team, and I was just in D.C. and talked to them, think they can beat or are comfortable that they can beat and why Biden will probably run for re-election despite all the talk and wishful thinking that he won't. I think he will. is because Donald Trump is of about equal popularity. They will be the two least popular figures since Gallup polling began in the 1920s to run for president. And part of the reason both of them will decide to run again is that they think they can beat the other, that the system is so broken that they're going to get a candidate they think they can beat, thereby ironically perpetuating the system. Trump is the favorite to win the nomination. I'd give Governor DeSantis of Florida with the beguiling siren song of Trumpism without Trump, and he's an able guy. Um, again, he's a Republican I certainly could get behind. I think DeSantis has a chance, but Trump emerges as the favorite. And if Biden wants to run, uh, the nomination traditionally will be his, and I don't think anybody's going to get in his way. So at the moment, both of them, old warriors, are tempting each other back onto the field, and the most likely outcome is a rematch of Biden and Trump. But as time goes on, that may change, and we'll talk about that. We're nowhere near ready to make a call on that. But take home to the bank our U.S. midterm call as we put our perfect record on the line. 
the GOP is going to pick up 20 to 30 seats in the House, and the Senate, amazingly, is going to remain 50-50. Hope you guys enjoyed this. It was great to get back to my desk and get to talk to you and are around the world in 20 minutes. Next month is inc- or this, this month is incredibly hectic. I'm going to be traveling four times in the month. Um, and so wherever I am, I will try to find time to keep our flagship going. I am delighted, J.L. Ryder and Publius, and now Garrett Merger stepping up, and we are becoming really what we hope to be, a little local newspaper to the world. And thank you so much for those of you who have subscribed overwhelmingly lately. Please continue doing so. And for those of you who have subscribed for the price of my beloved espresso, $70 a year, we can continue to give you exactly this, this totally unique and on-the-money political risk call. Our record at over 80%, our call record, is unrivaled around. And uh, if you want to know what's really going on, come to us for the price of only $70 a year, $7 a month or $70 a year. We will keep them coming. Take care and on to the next.